Uh, please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 5 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along on the screen. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word, and please remain standing as we pray for our sermon this morning. Dear God, Lord, we are so grateful to you. We're grateful that you give us your word, that you give us a pastor who uh, studies it. And Lord, I pray you would speak through him this morning, God, that your Holy Spirit would fill this room, fill our hearts, Lord, and that we would hear exactly what you have to say for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, friends, good morning. So good to see everyone this morning. Um, so delighted to um, have a full house, and I hope that you know if you are a guest with us this morning, you please feel welcome um, when the service is done to stay and to eat um, as much as you'd like. <laughs> it's always a great time to be able to get to know each other at that. Um, if you have to go, no, that, that, there's no guilt um, meant, but um, please feel free if you're a guest to stay and eat with us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and if you're kind of new here and you're looking for um, the opportunity to just get to know um, one another more, we do have a, a Wednesday night Bible study that we do right here in the church, and we also have a Saturday morning men's group that meets, and we had a wonderful breakfast um, this past Saturday. A lot of guys came out to that, so that was a lot of fun, and thanks to the guys who helped uh, flip the pancakes, and it was a lot, we didn't spill any coffee on the new rug, so that was nice. <laughs> And if there is a stain, it wasn't us. Um, but, but yeah, so we just are, are so encouraged to be here this morning um, with each other, gathered as the Lord's people. And I know that um, and we're not a very large group, but um, we're large enough, I think, to, to realize that this morning there's a, probably a wide variety of situations in our lives. Uh, people that maybe have great faith in Jesus Christ, maybe people that um, are struggling to know what is real or even true. So we just kind of recognize that that's, that's the reality, and that's why we're here, not to um, kind of pontificate about how much we know, but to lead each other all to Jesus Christ and the reality of who he is and what he's done. And um, what's in a name? <laughs> uh, pining over her dear Romeo and grieving the hatred between her family and his. You remember these bleeding words of Juliet. She says, "'Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's a Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose, 
by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name, put it off. And for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. Timeless words, if you've ever read Romeo and Juliet. What's in a name? That's the question. To Juliet, Romeo's name didn't define him. It was his heart. It was his character. It's who, what, who he was inside that she loved, not what he was connected to, what the families and the ties and all this. The ancient Hebrews viewed names not unlike the way Native Americans view names. You all, no doubt, I can guarantee most people in this room, um, if you grew up in our culture, have seen that Western classic, Dances with Wolves. Do you remember this movie? Very long, but what a great movie. Dances with Wolves, named after the lead character, played by Kevin Costner. Then his name in the movie was Lieutenant John Dunbar. And one day, observing Lieutenant Dunbar engaged in this playful game of race with a wolf, the Sui natives name him Dances with Wolves. Because they thought it remarkable that some wild animal, a wolf, which would normally eat a person, is somehow playing with him. It was remarkable to them. So in Native American naming traditions, names change throughout your life. You don't always have the same name. Children receive names that are descriptive, as, and as they grow, these names often change. I'm about to have a child, and we're going through the process of naming them right now. And sometimes that naming is significant. Um, it is related to someone that we respect or want to be like. Other times it's just what we like. We like the sound of it. It's popular. One Mohegan Native American offers this. Society bestows a new name, a name that is earned to this person. Much like Dances with Wolves. He earned that name. Ancient Hebrew culture was very similar, by the way. Either the name described something that the parents desired for the child, or it was prophetic about the personality or destiny of the, one, of the child named. And you remember those awful names that were given to the children in the, in the prophet's book of Hosea, if you ever read that. Um, in the Old Testament, when a name is changed, it marked a new beginning of sorts, a new relationship, a new quality of character, a new phase in life, a new calling. And we see this happen uh, various times in the Old Testament, if you recall, when Abram's name was changed to Abraham, and when Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Right. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and so on. There's many examples of this happening in Scripture. Names in Scripture, the changing of names in Scripture, refer to an identity, a purpose, a value, a destination, some kind of change. So God, in the beginning, names his creation. You remember this in the book of Genesis, in chapter 1 and 2. We have a lot of naming going on. And then he instructs man to continue naming all of creation. When Moses asked to see God's glory, do you remember what God's response was? You might not recall this story, but do you remember um, Moses was interacting with God? And Moses said, I want to see your glory. An amazing question. 
an amazing response God gives. And this is what God says to Moses. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And what a powerful name that we see throughout Scripture. Do you remember in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, there's an angry mob about to arrest Jesus Christ for for things that he was innocent of. And they're about to arrest him. They're pursuing him at night. And it says in John, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, they replied. I am, Jesus said. It's the Hebrew name for Lord. I am, Jesus said. And when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground as dead men. Wow. Repeatedly in Acts, we observe the apostles announcing the name of Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, Peter said. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. What's in a name? Good question. Our text tells us that God the Father, the text that we just read, God the Father exalts Jesus and gives him a name above every name. And in order for un- for un- to understand this exalted experience of Jesus, this promotion that's given to him by the Father, we need to understand the historical event of the ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus. We noticed last week the humiliation of Jesus. Recall this. Jesus Christ, who existed in the form of God, took on the form of a man, downward being humiliated, lowering his status. He was God, became a man, became a slave, died a death on a cross as a curse. So here is this humiliation. He does this because in his mind he is obedient to the Father and he loves you and I. That's why he does this. So we noted this humiliation last week, and this week we're seeing the opposite. Now the humiliated Christ is being exalted. He's being lifted up. He's being given a name above every name. If Jesus died and rose again, I want you to consider this with me. This is Christian doctrine. This is what Christianity claims to believe. If Jesus died and he is alive this moment, what is he doing right now? (laughs) It's a good question, right? Where did he go? And what is he doing? And that is the doctrine of the ascension. And scripture has a lot to say about what the resurrected Christ is doing right now. It's really beyond the scope of this one short sermon. But let me, let me give you a snapshot into the current ministry of Jesus Christ. What is Jesus doing this moment? First of all, we need to say that scripture makes much about what he is doing right now. It's just all over the New Testament as far as the current ministry of Christ. Jesus is alive, friends. This isn't fake. This isn't pretend. We're not making this up. Jesus, the man, is alive. And you say, well, why why can't we see him? Well, if Jesus truly is a man, that means his flesh can't be everywhere at the same time, right? I can't, my flesh can't be everywhere at the same time. It certainly can't. So Jesus' flesh cannot be either. God the Son's spirit 
can be everywhere at the same time, but the flesh, the body of Christ, is in one place. And the Bible says he is at the right hand of the Father right now. That Christ would resurrect and ascend to heaven is foretold and described, Luke chapter 22, Acts chapter 1. This is, those are the actual events of it happening in Scripture, if you want to write it down and see it. Luke twenty-two sixty-nine 69, and Acts 1, 9 through 11. The ascension of Christ is connected to the coming of, of God the Holy Spirit, given to the people of God, who proclaim Christ by faith. So he's con- the, the ascension of Christ is connected to the giving of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God gives to his church. And that's in John seven thirty-nine and in Ephesians 4, 8. Also, that Christ is ascended and is in heaven right now, according to John 14, it provides you and I, believers in Christ, assurance that we have an eternal hope and home. Because he lives and reigns this moment, he intercedes for us, Hebrews 14, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, chapter 6, and chapter 9, he ever lives to make intercession, always presenting his righteous blood covering the sins of his people so that the angry wrath of God is always satisfied. And that's why the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is once and for all. So that is what Jesus Christ is doing right now. His present ministry. That's just a snapshot. You can read entire volumes on this issue. In our passage, the initiation and purpose of this great event is described, I think, in three ways. Judgment, vindication, and destination. I want to unpack these things for you. Judgment, vindication. That Jesus was resurrected and ascended means that there is a just judge, judgment. That there is a vindication of the work of Christ and that there is a destination secured in that work. Now let's look at this because this is fantastic and I hope that you appreciate this this morning. So let's look at judgment. What's clear from this passage is it reveals a pre-existing one. If you look at the whole passage, he who was in the form of God became a man. So God, who has no beginning or ending, existed and decided to take on human flesh. He was really, truly, and fully God, the one whom by all things visible and invisible came into being. The Creator, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, really and truly, fully man. Now, as mysterious as that is, and as hard it is, it is to understand how is God man at the same time in the moment of Jesus' condescension, it's difficult to explain. It is mysterious, but that is what the Scriptures describe about what happens with Christ. So in this downward, this downward path of humiliation, not only does God become man, but this man becomes a slave, this man takes on death, and this, this death is the death of a curse that you and I deserved the curse of sin. He himself, he emptied. He himself, he humbled. He was not forced to do this. He voluntarily submitted to the Father's will and took on our pain and brokenness for us. The same Jesus who preceded Bethlehem, existing really and fully as God, becoming really and fully man, taking on the curse of sin, is the same Jesus in this moment who is now being given a new name. God the Father is simply making a value judgment on all of Christ's work by naming him and exalting him. In considering the life of Christ, the Father's only appropriate response was to lift him up to the highest of all. 
And here is the judgment of the Father on the identity and work of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord of all creation. Jesus is over all things in heaven and on earth. He's over your life. He's over this building. He's over your children. He's over this church. He is above all, and all creation will at some point acknowledge this. In this judgment is a divine, is in this fatherly assessment of, the, of Jesus' work, is the divine rite of passage for the God-man Jesus Christ. Not only does the Father declare the Son exalted, but at the moment of that declaration, the Son was actually endowed with all glory and all authority. And that means that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you never, friend, have to be afraid again. That means that nothing happens to you outside of God's care for your life. As horrific and horrible as life can be, and as much as the events of our lives grieve us, we have a faithful Jesus who is exalted at the right hand of the Father who is faithfully bringing us home. And that is the judgment of the Father, the divine right of, by this fatherly approval and promotion of Christ, all of his words, all of his works, all of his joys, all of his tragedies in his life and his death are vindicated. And number two, vindicated. Jesus is now lifted up. But why? What is the Father responding to exactly? Why is God the Father exalting Jesus with a name that is above every name and giving him all power and glory? Well, certainly I think it would include what Jesus did on the cross for lost people. God the Father is, uh, is applauding that humiliation and that sacrifice. But it's more than that, friend, because if you read this passage, remember, it's saying, have this attitude, this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus, have this mind in yourself. So this is really pointing more than just to one historical event being the cross of Christ, but the attitude of Christ. The attitude of Christ in general, from his birth to his death. One writer notes this. He was not grasping in relation to his glory. Defensive in relation to his deity. Protective of his unique human experience. In other words, when he became a man, he's, he didn't say, you know, everyone should be lauding and applauding me and showering me with gold. So he wasn't protective of his unique human experience. From the brightness of the glory to the dust of death, in the place of the curse, Jesus showed both obedience and love to the uttermost. And by this obedience and love, everything concerning his motivations, concerning his actions, concerning his humiliations are vindicated. The Father is vindicating the attitude, work, and life of Jesus Christ. He's saying this is the way of life. Unlike Satan, who decided to usurp authority, who decided to become something other than he was to self-exalt. The life of Christ vindicates the way of humility, resolving that great angelic conflict and answering the sin of Satan. And do you remember what it was in Isaiah 14? Satan said this, I will ascend to the heavens. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above God. 
Imagine. I'm God. Get lost. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly. I will sit enthroned. That throne is mine. On the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pits. So these two defiant words of Satan, I will occasion the fall of both angels and man. But two other words, by them came our rescue, thy will. What Satan tried to take, the son was given. What Satan sought after, which he was not, the son, which he was, relinquished. The mind of Christ, with all of its voluntary humiliation, with all of its obedience to the Father's will and love for lost people, all of the mind of Christ is here vindicated in the Father's naming Jesus. And Dr. Don Carson says this, God assigns Jesus a name that reflects what he has achieved and that acknowledges who he is. That name is Lord. Isaiah 42, verse 8, what is this new name that Jesus was given? Lord. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. And Jesus has earned this lordship. Isn't that interesting? He earned it as the first God-man. He achieved it. Not because there was no sense in which he had it before, continues Carson, but because he now achieves it for the first time as the God-man. Isaiah 45, 22, verse 25, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, listen to this, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Verbatim, word for word, our texts about Jesus in Philippians. They will say, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. Frightening. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord. And who are the descendants of Israel according to the New Testament? Those who have proclaimed Christ by faith in his death and resurrection. It's awesome and it's terrifying in the same breath that Jesus is the one spoken about in Isaiah 45. The humble servant endowed with all the glory and authority of the Father and this is the Father's vindication of the Son's mind and motivations, the name he gives him and what's in a name. What's the destination? What's the purpose of this exalted pronouncement that's what i want to look at tonight the third point our destination i really see three in other words what is this leading to what does this actually look like right now and in, in 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 the life to come what's the destination why does god bestow on jesus the name above every name and i see three purposes in it 
and they, they are justice, restoration, and glory. Now let's look at this terrifying and sobering reality of God's justice. Our text reads that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now friends, I know that there are many people in our world that deny that Jesus Christ is Lord, but if God be real and if his word be true, then one day all of our mouths will be stopped and we'll know that Jesus is Lord. So we need to make no mistake, this passage isn't suggesting, by the way, that somehow if you didn't confess Christ in this life, that you'll confess him then and you'll be all right, that you'll be saved. If anything, this passage announces the opposite, that to us the limited, there is a limited time for man to proclaim Christ. And that is your life, friends, which is over and but a vapor. The same mouths that will confess the Lord when, when he returned, you remember in Isaiah 14, these have raged against him and they will come to him and be put to shame. This text says nothing about the attitude of the confession. It's certainly not a happy one for those described in Isaiah 45. If this text tells us anything, it is that Jesus has the last word. Don Carson says this again, either we repent and confess him by faith as Lord now, or we will confess him in shame on the last day. I know that's hard to hear, and it's difficult to swallow, but this is the word we get from the Lord. He continues, the Jesus I'm talking about is not some sort of personalized therapy. The Jesus I'm talking about made you. We owe him. And one day, you will have to give an account of your life to him. Paul is not making a claim about a Jesus who is domesticated, easily marginalized, psychologically privatized, remarkably sanitized, and merely personal. He is one with God, yet he died on the cross to redeem us to himself. And now Paul insists that the Father has vindicated him in his humiliation and sacrifice and that every knee will bow before him. Because Christ has been exalted, justice will be executed. Sin will be judged. Evil will end. And you say, wow, that's sobering, that's hard. But look at the amazing promise of number two, restoration. I want you to think about this just logically with me. We all kind of sometimes wince that, that God will judge sin. But friend, do any, friends, do any of us really want him not to? Do, do any of us really want the evils of this world not to come to an end? I mean, otherwise we're just basically saying that they don't matter. That it's fine that people will, will just die and will end up in the ground and, you know, what's the big deal? I think what happens is, I remember reading a poster saying, a, a, a lot of people will agree on what we call sin, but we often disagree very much about what we call excusable sin. 
<laughs> right? The reality is we can debate on the difference between right and wrong and what's right and wrong, but at the end of the day, I think we all recognize that there is wrong in this world. On a certain level, there is evil in this world. And friend, if there is no God, if there is no just judge, if there is no risen Savior who has been given all authority, then let evil reign, because it will. There will be no end to it. But because Christ is risen, because Christ was given all authority, because he has conquered sin and death, he will put an end to it. And friend, that's the flip side of the coin of God's justice, which I know can be difficult to understand, but the flip side of it is restoration. The exaltation of Christ negatively assures the final demise of all sin and evil, but consequently guarantees the restoration and rescue of this broken and sinful world. Isn't that great news? That the world as you see it and know it, in your gut you know this, isn't the way it's supposed to be. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're absolutely right. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's broken, it's fallen, it's sinful. But Jesus died and resurrected. He is coming again to make it what it was supposed to be. And that's the restoration that he provides. All of creation, all of Christ's bride will confess Jesus as Lord and be restored. And we read about Christ's present rule right now in Ephesians chapter 1. God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. The ascended Christ rules right now as head over the church. That's every believer on this earth that has confessed Christ. And that is our assurance of redemption. Because Christ is head, because he has the power to keep us, we don't have to ever fear the angry wrath of God again. Because our sins are gone, and Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for you. For the creation waits. Romans um, tells us this. The creation waits. All of creation, all physical order. All the dirt and the trees and the animals, everything around us. This is what scripture says. Creation itself waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That is for the coming of Christ. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the, one, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The earth itself will be made what it was supposed to be. Scripture talks about this over and over again in the Old Testament where the lion lies with the lamb. The child reaches into the asp den and is not harmed. So even all of the created order is put back into place. And this is what Christ's ascension promises us. Creation is restored to happy order under the rule of Jesus. And what's more, humanity is put back over her intended role and rulership over creation. Did you know what God told Adam to do in the garden? He said, fill the earth and subdue it. Man was supposed to rule over creation and righteousness, to govern it, to use it for God's glory. But the first Adam by his self-exaltation, lost that role. His noble calling was reduced. The second Adam sits 
stood in the place of the first Adam and did what he was supposed to do and brings us back to that that innocent state before the fall. The second Adam sits as head of the church, restoring our lost privilege. The Bible says that in the life to come, that we, that God's people will reign with him and will judge angels. We are given rulership over the renewed and restored earth. Can you imagine? Without sin, like Christ, ruling over a new earth. We're not going to be in the stratosphere, standing on this kind of nebulous space and nothing. The Bible says that heaven is the earth. That God remakes the earth in all of the heavens. That tells me that there's going to be an earth, that there's going to be stars, that I'm going to have a body. It's going to be what it was intended to be. Perfect relationship with God our maker and rulership over his creation. And that's what the ascension provides. Friend, what you're after in life is not better than that. It's not. Now, if this isn't true, if this is just a fairy tale, if this is just kind of made up, then okay. Then I guess what do we got, what do we got to look forward to? But prove it. Oh, friend, there is a God. If I look at my coffee cup lid and I think, wow, what a great design plan this was so it wouldn't spill all over my lap, how can I not look at my eyeball? And think, wow, what a great God we have that designed the intricate details of life. And he speaks what Adam should have been, Christ is. And ultimately will lead to the restoration of all creation. And finally, number three, glory. The destination is glory. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father is glorified. The Son is glorified. The church is glorified. You say, I want glory in life. Well, that's because God made you to want glory. Just not in getting glory from creation. He made you to get it from Him. Listen to this. Imagine these words. Jesus said this. He looked toward heaven and prayed. This is John 17, the longest prayer of, of Christ in the Bible. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And now this is eternal life, that, you, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world was. Is there any question about who Jesus is in that statement? And listen to this. If that's not enough, watch this. I have given them the glory that you gave me. I don't deserve that. I wasn't the one that humiliated himself. I wasn't the one that existed in the... I I seek to promote myself and exalt myself. I have so time and time again resisted God's will for my life and disobeyed Him and scorned His word. But for some reason, I get the glory Jesus has. And you want to know why? Because when Jesus died for my sins on the cross, it was as if I had always made the right choice every single time in my life. 
That's what the blood of Jesus does for me. So I am innocent, I am righteous, not because of myself, but because Jesus was, and it's imputed onto me. Praise God. Now I have given them the glory that you gave me. Amazing grace house. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less faith to sing God's praise till, till when, than when we first begun. Right? Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. What Jesus accomplished through his obedience and humiliation, quite simply, was to bring glory to the Father, to bring glory to himself, and to bring glory to his redeemed. God no longer rejected, his word no longer scorned, his power and his presence no longer veiled. This is what the ascension, the name, the exalted name of Christ, that is the destiny of that pronouncement. We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Do you remember the remorse of Job in the Old Testament? He said this, My good days are in the past. My hopes have disappeared. My heart's desires are broken. Friends, can I offer to you this morning that if you've ever been there in your life, that the ascension of Christ should show you that your good days are yet to come and that your hopes are yet to be realized. That everything that you want out of life will be given to you the moment you trust in Jesus Christ. So do that this morning, friend. Friends, what's the mind of Christ? We asked that question last week. To glorify the Father. The glory the Son had before the creation, it was held in abeyance during his life in humble reserve when he was emptied, crushed, and cursed. And by this, he ascended, was vindicated, justice was secured, and glory assured. And let's be reminded one more time. Let your minds be like his. Let your attitude be like Christ's, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, being made in the form of a servant, dying a death on a cross. Amen? Amen. He is the supremely exalted, he is there supremely exalted, says Dr. Maudier, because through it all, he was the same. The one who, out of obedience to God and love for sinners, said no to everything that might have been advantageous to himself. He held nothing back. By yielding it up, he might more fully obey God and save the lost. And friends, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Could you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you, Lord, that you've spoken to us. God, that we can look around us, as your word says, in creation and know that there is a designer with power. That the heavens tell the glory of God. God, that we can know that you're there simply by the created thing. But God, you didn't leave us at that. You spoke to us through your word. You authenticated, you proved that your word was your word when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
And God, we thank you, Lord, that he ever lives to make intercession for us this moment. God, we ask, Lord, that if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, I pray, Lord, if there was anything confusing that I said that, would be, that, that it would be made clear. God, if there was anything wrong that I said, that it would be quickly forgotten. But God, if there was any truth in what I said, Lord, that it would be believed. That we would trust you. And if you don't know Jesus, friend, would you put your trust and saving faith in Jesus Christ this moment? He is real. He loves you. He made you. In eternity past, the, the glory Jesus shared with the Father, God, it was dispensed for you. And Jesus humiliated himself for you and bore your sin on a cross so that you might come to him by grace through faith. Proclaim, confess the name above every name. God, I pray, Lord, that we would not put any other name above your name. That we wouldn't put status or love or sex or money above your name. God, help us to call on you and confess the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. And if you're doing that right now for the first time and confessing your sin to him and trusting him, the Bible says that your sin is separated from you, that you have an eternal hope, that because Jesus Christ lives and intercedes for you this moment, that you have the promised assurance of eternal life. And if that's you, I just want to rejoice with you. Would you come and talk to me and tell me and, so that I can pray with you or talk to somebody that maybe you came with that knows the Lord? God, we thank you, Lord, for this church. I pray, God, that each moment of our lives that we would remember that you are there reigning, waiting to restore all things. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.